so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It's hard to believe that it's been four months that we've been in the book of Ephesians since the Sunday after Easter, our great celebration of two congregations becoming one on Easter, and then digging into this series on being built together and seeing all these incredible truths fleshed out from this book. Now, if you're anything like me, perhaps you lost something along the way. Perhaps you forgot that this book of the Bible with all these incredible truths in it is actually a letter written to a church in Ephesus because it's been four months since we heard Paul tell us he's writing to these people as he's gone on to tell us and pray for them and all of these incredible truths. It's so easy when we come to the scripture, sometimes we pick up books like Romans and it's easy to forget that it's a missionary support letter when we begin to think about all the incredible theology that is there. Or we can turn to 1 Corinthians, and rather than a pastoral letter designed to intervene in a very divided and messed up church, we want to build all of our ecclesiology, all of our theology of the church. But today we get to the end of that letter, and we're reminded that it is a letter written to specific people with specific needs. And what we're going to see today is at the end of this letter, Paul pauses and he articulates two blessings. One of them he's going to send in person through Tychicus, and the other one is going to come in the form of a benediction. But these are two profound blessings tucked in these four little verses. And I think that they're blessings that if we are able to experience and pray for one another— they would be blessings that would completely and totally transform our church and our lives individually. So today we're going to begin with the idea of blessing, because it's one of those ones we don't often talk a lot about. We don't live in a culture of blessing anymore. If you grew up in the ancient Near East, when you read the stories of the Old Testament, blessing is a very profound idea. Today we tend to get lost in one of two avenues of blessing. Sometimes we either hear about it as nothing more than kind of positive thinking. There are those people who think if you direct your thoughts in the right way, you can kind of control reality. And then there's other people who are like, well, they're just words. Well, the truth is that tension that's found in between. A blessing is the idea of appealing to the profound goodness and character of God and directing it over the life of an individual. When we think about how important blessing is, we couldn't help but go to the story of Jacob, right? Jacob, who manages to get his brother's birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. But to get the blessing, he has to trick his father Isaac by putting on animal skin and having his mom make 
the special meal, right? Jacob, who will not let go of the angel of the Lord until he is blessed. Blessing has a profound impact in biblical culture. And if it's one of those things that if we could recapture the idea of blessing one another, blessing our families, blessing our church family by invoking the profound goodness and character of God, we could transform so many things. So the first blessing we're going to look at is the blessing of encouraging relationships. And we're going to see this in verses 21 to 24 here. Paul says, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Now, couple of those great truths of Ephesians just to bring them back to the forefront. Paul spent the better part of three years ministering in Ephesus, longer than he spent founding and solidifying any other church. They hold a near and special place to his heart. And now he languishes in prison. And so he writes to encourage them. They naturally wonder how he is and what is going on in his life. He is an ambassador in chains, he tells us. And we realize that in our world, ambassadors are usually chosen for roles of pomp and circumstance. But ambassadors of the gospel sometimes are called to suffer. And so Paul is writing in the midst of this profoundly challenging circumstance. But his heart is beating for these people. And he wants to make sure they are encouraged. And he draws encouragement from them for their concern for him as well. And then next we're introduced to Tychicus. He was from the region of Asia Minor probably from this very area. He was known by these people. We learn a couple of other important things about him when we read through Acts. He was one of Paul's companions on his third missionary journey. He was one of seven men listed as accompanying Paul in the collection of the famine relief effort to bring this money to a church desperately in need. He was well and profoundly respected. Most scholars think he is the one who has in fact been charged with carrying this letter to bring it to the church in Ephesus. And a lot of other scholars think he's not only carrying the letter to the church in Ephesus, he's also carrying Colossians and Philemon as well. He's being accompanied by Onesimus and is the one who's charged to go and make sure that Philemon and Onesimus reconcile slave and master with one another. He is a profound servant of the Lord. Paul describes him as a beloved brother, not only one who is one with him in Christ, but somebody who has and tugs the unique heartstrings of him. He's a faithful minister. The same word Paul will use to describe his own ministry. The word that is used to translate as the office of deacon. A couple other profound things that we so often miss in those little snippets at the end of letters. He's one of two men told to Titus on Crete who might come and replace him. At the end of Ephesians, I'm sorry, at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy at the end of his life, wanting Timothy to come to him. Who is it who he's going to send to replace Timothy at the church in Ephesus to know that that church is cared for? It's Tychicus. If we were to think about one of those Bible series on unsung heroes, 
Tychicus should be at the top of that. We take that quick aside and remind ourselves of how important people are behind the scenes. That so often in ministry, we all tout the Peters and the Pauls. But we recognize that there are so many countless others who are working behind the scenes who make it all possible. And so for those of you who do so many of those things behind the scenes on Sunday mornings in the life of the church, in the life, in ministry, take heart and recognize that you are making an impact just as Tychicus did. And then we read why is Paul sending him. We look at those two verses, and three times Paul spells it out. We want to catch that emphasis. So that you may know how I am doing. You may know what I am doing. He's going to tell you everything for the purpose that you may know how we are and encourage you. Encouraging relationships. And again, sometimes we have to step back and hit those things that we know, but we don't always think about. Especially for some of us in our younger generations, there was no social media. There was no text messaging, no WhatsApp. Having had a son on the mission field for five months, oh, it's a wonderful day to have missionary connections. WhatsApp, technology, all these wonderful things. But in the ancient world, they didn't even have email. It was all handwritten letters, and it wasn't like you could just slap a stamp on it and send it. And those things that we know, but we recognize information was so hard to come by. And it was so vitally important to the life of the church. He is desperately wanting the church in Ephesus to know how he is doing. He wants to encourage them. And that encouragement, we've seen already the need for it flushed out. When we go back to Ephesians chapter 3, we read Paul saying this. He says, so I ask you, church, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The church was discouraged. They were losing heart. Why? Because Paul was in prison. Why? In large part because he supported churches like them. We go back to Acts 21. Why is it that Paul is in trouble? It's because he actually puts into practice the gospel message. That God has opened the door not only to the Jews to be saved, but also to the Gentiles. That the religious establishment forgot that their purpose as the Jewish nations was to be a light to the world. They forgot that they were not chosen because they were somehow more righteous No, as Moses wrote to them in Deuteronomy, you are more stiff-necked than any other nation on the face of the earth. This is why I chose you. They were to be an exhibit of his grace. And yet Paul languishes in chains because he has declared and ministered and brought the gospel and founded churches among the Gentiles. So he is there and they are wondering how is he doing. And so he writes and sends Tychicus them to encourage them. That wonderful Greek word parakaleo literally means to come alongside somebody. What a beautiful image of encouragement. It's not just giving somebody a compliment. It's not, ooh, I like your haircut. Or, ooh, that really hides your bald spot, right? 
as we get older. Some of those things that like, there's just no way to compliment it anymore, right? This is the reality of what it is. But the truth of bringing God's perspective into a situation, of recognizing the profound truth in the message that would need to be heard, the truth that would come from Tychicus, that yes, life is hard for Paul, but guess what? You're never going to believe it. Every time a new regiment comes in, Paul gets to tell them about Jesus. And now there are people in Caesar's household who claim the name of Jesus. God is working. So often what we need to be reminded of is encouragement, is bringing God's perspective into a situation. And we need that. Why? Because when we're lost in our situations, we so often cannot see it. We need somebody else to come alongside of us and offer us that perspective to be reminded that God is at work. He is doing profound things even when we cannot see it. If there are those moments in life where we need someone to come alongside of us and remind us of how God is using our discouraging situation. I was reminded this past week about a time quite a few years ago when I was going through a rough spell. We were having some challenges at church. We'd gone through another miscarriage loss in our relationship, Tori and I, and I was feeling discouraged. And then I had to go to a sentencing hearing for my brother who'd done something horrible in our family and hearing his confession and 20-year prison sentence. And I was just done. I was done with God. I was done with ministry. It just wasn't worth it anymore. And all the other people and all their problems, like, when do I get to tell people about my problems? And it was in the midst of that, that one guy named Dave came and walked alongside of me. He encouraged me to see how God could use my pain and still speak and minister into the lives of other people. And those things that you don't get to know in the moment. Oh, if God would just show it to you at the beginning, it would make it so much easier. Maybe it's just me. Everybody else has that down, right? No, but those moments when you get that letter six months down the road, when I didn't want to pick up the phone and reach out and minister to another man who I knew, who who he and his wife had just experienced a miscarriage, and knowing that that is an incredibly hard road to walk, And getting a letter from him, and he said, if you hadn't reached out to me, I don't think I'd still be married. Because everything was all about my wife and her loss. And that that was real and important, but there was nobody there for me. And because you were there for me, I was able to be there for her. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if somebody else hadn't have been there to lift me up and remind me that, yeah, pain in life is hard. But God is good in the midst of it. And he promises to transform our pain for his glory and our transformation if we will but let him. Now, do not hear me say in any of that that pain or evil is good. For God is not the author of evil. But he is the one who has promised to work all things, even the hardest of them, for good. So we hear this profound call for encouraging relationships. We recognize that it's a gift of the Spirit in Romans 12. Paul commands the church to encourage one another in 1 Thessalonians 5. 
And we recognize it has to be real for it to be encouragement. And we see the give and the take here that Paul recognizes what they want to actually know about how he's doing. They actually care how important it is in our lives to have real encouraging relationship, to know that there are people who actually want to hear how we are doing, that they actually care. And this is easier for some of us than others. Some of us are much more naturally relationally bent, right? Others of us, were more task-focused. And it requires a level of relentlessness for us who are naturally task-focused. It's easy to arrive here on a Sunday morning and look at my post-it notes of all the things that I have to do, all the people I need to talk to. And it's easy to lose the importance of people in the midst of that for those of us who have that more task mindset, Right? We need to be reminded what we were designed as relational creatures. Back, Genesis 1, in the beginning, what? God. Before the heavens and the earth, there was God. God who always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God who always was in relationship. Is it any wonder that God tells us we need relationship? Is it any wonder as we read through the beginning of Genesis, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and whoop, something's not good. And it was not good before sin entered the world. Then everything got messed up. But like before that, there, there it was not good for Adam to be alone. That humanity was designed for relationship. We were all designed for relationship. We all need that level of encouragement. To imagine for a moment, if we became a church, if we became individuals who said, I don't want to leave any place I am until I encourage somebody else. If every person here walked away having encouraged another person, it would mean that everybody else has also been encouraged as well. We recognize that we are people who have been designed and built to need encouragement. And we wish sometimes it wasn't so. We wish life was easy. We would much prefer things to go that way. Yet God has designed us to need one another. And we see this profound blessing hidden in these words that Paul wants the church to know how he's doing. It's a blessing to know how someone is doing. It's a blessing to be known. If you've ever had that experience of being alone, it can be so utterly terrifying. I grew up being much more of a loner type of person and got some fun stories I could tell you about that. But I still remember one of the most alone times I've ever felt in my entire life. It was as a junior at West Aurora High School. It wasn't as big when I went there as it is today, but it was still a very big high school. And walking into the lunchroom and looking around and realizing I did not know a single person there. I was on the varsity football team. How did I end up in a lunch period where there's not a single person from the football team in this entire room? I'm in the honors track. How is it that I can't find a geek? How is it that I can't find any one of the numerous opportunities of relationships that I could have, right? And then I saw somebody who I didn't really know from my church, but I wasn't really involved in my church at that point in time. And they came over and said, hey, you want to sit with us? It's like, you look, look, you look like a little shell-shocked. You know, hey, you're, you don't have to, but you're welcome to come and sit with us. 
And that was, again, one of those profound moments that happens and transforms our lives. Somebody whose eyes are open to see someone in need of encouragement. And so we recognize here that Paul wants the blessing of an encouraging relationship with the church in Ephesus. It's a give and take relationship where there is the giving and the receiving of blessing and of being known. Reminded of the story written by, a reference written by the great writer Lucian. He lived around 120 AD and was writing about the followers of Jesus. And he said this, It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Yeshua, has actually put it into their head that they're all brothers. They actually believe they are one family. They spare nothing. They live profoundly different than everyone else. They live and experience encouraging relationships. And then we come to the next blessing as we turn to verses 23 and 24. The blessing of enduring grace. And Paul's going to pronounce a benediction. We notice a couple interesting things. Paul will reverse some of the terminology in the way he normally does it. And he usually offers one blessing at the end of every one of his letters. But for the Ephesian church, he's going to actually give them two. Another little interesting piece here. Now, we have to recognize what has Paul done in this letter. He has prayed for them in chapter 1. He's prayed for them in chapter 3. In the great armor of God passage that we looked at last week, he says, you all need to be praying for each other, for all the saints at all times and in all circumstances. Oh, and by the way, pray also for me that I may boldly proclaim the gospel. But all of that's not enough. He's going to offer one more prayer of blessing on them. He has written his heart out. He has sent a great personal cost to him. His beloved friend and minister, Tychicus, did let them know how he's doing, but that's not enough. He has to invoke God to do what only God can do. And he's going to ask God for this blessing of enduring grace in their lives. And we recognize what he asks for is so different than when most of us use the language of bless, right? If I'm blessed, what does it mean? I've got plenty of food. I've got clothes. I've got a house. I've got a job. I've got education. I've got family. I've got good health. Those are the blessings we so naturally think of. And we need to recognize what? They're blessings. They come from God and they are good. But when we look at blessing in the Old Testament, when we look at the blessings of Paul, they're almost always primarily spiritual the things that he asks for, to recognize what is it in that encouragement that we offer to one another? What is it that beats in our hearts? Is it only the things of this world or is it the things of God? And we're going to see he's going to ask for peace, love, faith, and grace. I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The first thing he says is he wants to pray that they would experience peace. Now, most of the time when we hear the word peace, what do we think about? Absence of conflict. I was talking with somebody this past week and they said, they, well, they kind of poked fun at the phrase, 
happy wife, happy life, right? Like the, the idea was, if your wife is happy, you don't have relational conflict, so life is good. The wife did not appreciate that, right? We, we so often want to just define things as the absence of. But peace in Ephesians is so much more. It is deep reconciliation. And so Ephesians talks about this peace in two profound ways, vertical and horizontal. We see that peace with God is necessary. Ephesians 2 starts out this way, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Anytime you need a pick-me-up, go read the beginning of Ephesians 2. Be reminded of who you are apart from Christ. As a result of Adam's sin in this world, we are separated from God. We are under the wrath of God. But then perhaps the greatest verse in the Bible, Ephesians 2, 4, but God, rich in mercy, completely and totally transformed our relationship with him. He made peace with God possible because he took the punishment for our sins and died on the cross on our behalf. And so we hear first that aspect, that prayer for peace, of recognizing our deep need for being right with God. And if we're here this morning and we have never had that great but God moment, that great moment of recognizing I cannot save myself, there's no greater day than today. I'd love to talk more with you about that. We've got some people in the back who'd love to pray more with you about that idea of recognizing what it means to be right and experience peace with God. But then Paul goes on to say, not only do we need peace vertically, we must have peace horizontally as well. He goes on, Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, to say, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one man, one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God has done something amazing. Not only in Jesus has he made us right with God, He has taken those who are enemies in this world and he has brought them together to create a new humanity in his church. He is uniting Jew and Gentile. Or as he'll write to the Colossian church, he's broken it all down. Colossians 3.11, he says, For there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ has broken down every dividing line because of what Christ has done. And if we want to experience that profound blessing, it means in turn, what do we need to do sometimes? It means not only do I need to be forgiven for my sins, but I need to forgive those who have sinned against me. I was talking with somebody this past week about my favorite definition of forgiveness. I like the definition that if you forgive somebody, it means you give up the right 
to use what you've forgiven in a future argument. It means it no longer gets to carry on the balance sheet in a relationship. It means I don't get to trot out your past failures the next time you mess up. Because if Jesus did that to us, we would never escape. It's a profoundly transformation of our relationships. That if we are here and we are holding something against someone else, God's call upon us is to forgive it. To recognize what? I don't have to carry the balance sheet because Jesus says he will. Jesus says, vengeance is mine, declareth the Lord. I will hold the great balance sheet. Guess what? Because you really aren't good enough to hold it. He promises that either it will be paid for on the cross or through the fires of judgment. Either way, you can trust that you can let go of your pain. Not to say it didn't matter. To forgive it means the exact opposite. If it didn't matter, it doesn't require forgiveness. But it requires forgiveness because it hurts, because it is wrong. And then we hear the great call not only for forgiveness, but for reconciliation. Recognizing that to forgive means I have to experience God's grace in my life. However, if I'm going to reconcile with somebody else, not only do I have to experience that grace, somebody else does as well. So reconciliation takes two. It doesn't just take one. But if you're here today, as we talk about the language of blessing, and there is someone that God lays on your heart and you recognize, I need to seek reconciliation with that person. I need to forgive that. I am still holding that with clenched hand because they hurt me. And there's that part of us that fears that if we let go of that hurt, no one will remember. But we need to recognize God will remember. He will hold it. So you do not have to. So that first blessing he prays for is peace. And then we come, not only peace be to the brothers, but love with faith. Words throughout the whole epistle. Ephesians starts out, For this reason, 115, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Paul's writing to them, and he's going to pray for them. What is true of you? You have faith in Jesus, and you have love for one another. You have the two greatest commandments. That's pretty impressive. That's a pretty high commendation for a church. But is it enough? No. Why? Paul's going to go on to pray in chapter 319. I pray that you would know the love of Christ, that what surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray that you would experience more. This blessing of love with faith is necessary. Why? Because if we're honest, love is hard. I love some of the lines in the Bible that just remind us how hard it is. Ephesians 4, 2, Paul says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's a whole lot of qualifications, isn't it? If you're going to bear with one another in love, what do you need to realize? It's going to take some humility. Because people don't deserve it. Right? It's going to take gentleness. Why? Because it's really hard to bear with somebody if you aren't being gentle. And then I love it. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. It will require work. It will require grace in your life. Love and faith are a profound combination. And they are powerful when they are together. 
And we often think about faith as the idea of trust, that love and trust are required because we cannot truly love if we do not trust. I'm reminded of the story about a fire in downtown Chicago many years ago. There was a crowd that gathered, as often happens when a large building is on fire, and people are standing around and watching. And then the horrors realized that on one of those upper floors, there is a little girl. And they can't get the ladder to her. The flames are too hot and there's too much smoke. And so they're telling her to jump. The only problem is the little girl is blind. And she refuses to jump. The firefighters do everything to convince her that they will catch her. And then in a moment, everything changes. That little girl's father gets on the bullhorn and he tells her, you have to jump right now. Whee! Out she goes. And she lands without injury because she is so relaxed, because she is completely trusting that she is jumping into the arms of her father. That's love with trust. That is love with faith. That is the blessing we receive and we recognize what they build one another the more trustworthy we find God to be, the more we can love him. And the more we love him, the more we're willing to trust with him and to recognize there are those moments most of us have experienced in life where God will tell us to jump and we aren't exactly sure where it's going. And without love and faith, we cannot make those jumps. And we recognize what? Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is ultimately not something we create. It comes from God. It is the result of his grace, which is where he turns next. Grace be with all who have loved our Lord Jesus Christ with love. Incorruptible. And grace is a huge theme in Ephesians. And again, we see two sides to this grace, this blessing that we receive. The grace of what God has done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're reminded of these great verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. God has wiped our slate clean. He has declared us not guilty in Christ. And it is nothing that we do. As Billy Graham used to say, it cannot be sought, bought, or wrought. Or perhaps we could think about the great story of Teddy Roosevelt when he was with his Rough Riders before he was president during the Spanish-American War. And he came upon a Red Cross encampment with Clara Barton. And he said, we'll pay anything. We desperately need supplies. And she said, no. The supplies are not for sale. I can imagine he uttered a few colorful words, but he's just recorded as saying, then how am I supposed to get the supplies? And Clara Barton simply responds to him, all you have to do is ask. They are not for sale, but they are available to all who need them. Once that grace has profoundly humbled us, we recognize we're prepared for what God wants to do next. And before we read that next couple verses in Ephesians 2, we remind ourselves who's writing this. It's Paul. 
who used to be Saul, the great persecutor of Christians, the one who experienced God's grace on the road to Damascus, completely not interested in God, a complete enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he encountered him to transform his life and called him to become an apostle to the Gentiles. So when Paul writes these words, Ephesians 2.10, hear them with fresh ears. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace is not only about what God has done. Grace is about what God is doing now and intends to do with your life in the future. That we experience this blessing of grace, not only in salvation, but in the transformation of who we are now and in the good things that God intends to do through us. Hear Paul's heart. If God can use me, imagine what he can do with you. And then we come to that last part of verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. And we kind of read that, and and it kind of makes us a little uncomfortable. Because it's almost like God's saying, wait a minute. Wait, is is Paul saying that grace is only for those who love God incorruptible? I don't know about you, but there's moments when my love feels anything but incorruptible. How, How do we balance this? We recognize that love is necessary and a profound thing. And we could take it one step further It's a word that literally means immortal. The NIV will translate this. Those who love Christ with what? An undying love. With a love that cannot be tainted. How is it that we can come to love God with this type of love? And so we we need to hear both the warning and the promise hidden in this little phrase. So we need to recognize the hard and profound truth, what? That it is possible to love God with a fickle heart. It is possible for our love to fall short. Jesus tells us this in the parable of the sower, that three of the four soils will not ultimately grow and last and bear fruit. Paul will write to the Corinthian church, test yourselves, examine yourselves to make sure that you are in the faith. That we could go to the postscript in 2 Timothy And read perhaps the most terrifying verse in a postscript in the entire Bible. 2 Timothy 4.10 says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He deserted. He walked away from me. His love literally failed. And he walked away. And we could also go perhaps to 2 Ephesians. And read some familiar verses there. We remind ourselves that there's another letter. We don't call it Second Ephesians, right? We call it Revelation, chapter 2. That Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And along with the letter to Laodicea is one of the most famous. That we keep in mind these words as we read Jesus' challenge to that church. But I have this against you, Revelation 2, 4, and 5. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there is this level of warning we need to hear. That there is a fickle 
love. And Paul warns us about it. But if that's all we said, we would divorce ourselves from the context of blessing because we need to remind ourselves of another profound truth. Our love flows from grace, not the other way around. Our love flows from grace, not the other way around. We love what? Because Christ first loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It changes everything. It is not the quality of our faith that saves us. It is the faithfulness of God that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us. We could travel and look at the story of Peter for a moment. If you helped out with Vacation Bible School, you got a lot of Peter this summer. We're reminded what? Peter makes some bold boasts. Perhaps the boldest, Jesus, I don't care who else denies you, I will die for you. Oh, Peter, you're not even going to make it through the night. Before dawn, you will deny me three times. Your love is anything but undying. But take heart. Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you that once you have fallen, you will rise and strengthen your brothers. It is the grace of God that held Peter up, not the strength of Peter's love because his love fell short. We are reminded of the profound power of grace. That our love flows out of God's grace, not the other way around. And that means something profound. God's grace preserves and purifies our love. Right? We continue with that story of Peter. Peter, having encountered the resurrected Christ, and he's out fishing Oh, the commentators love to talk about why he's out fishing. We don't know, right? But throw your net on the other side of the boat. Oh, that sounds so much like the call of Peter, the miraculous catch of fish at the beginning. Gotta love Peter. He still doesn't get it. 153 fish. Wow, that's a lot of fish. And then John's like, it's Jesus. Bing. But to Peter's credit, the moment he does get it, He responds, and he is the only one in the water tearing it to get to Jesus, even though he betrayed him, even though there's that walk that has to happen on the beach. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know all things. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter, That one day you will be led where you do not wish to go. You will be dressed how you do not wish to dress. You will die for me. So come follow me. Once you boasted and your faith was not ready. Now, with eyes wide open, choose to follow me. Because my grace is at work in your life. We need to hear the profound blessing of love incorruptible, that it is the result of grace. It is not something we can create. Yes. Will Peter face judgment? Yes. But what passes through will all be splendor. Why? Because it's all Jesus. It never depended on what we did in the first place, or we wouldn't have got that far. We need to hear the profound blessing of enduring grace. 
to pray that over one another, that we would receive the blessing of peace, of love with faith, of grace that leads to a love that is incorruptible. Because one day it will be the day we are remade in glory in Jesus' image. But until that day, that is the blessing that we are called upon to pour over one another. So imagine how our lives would be transformed if we could put into practice these four little verses These four little verses that, if we're honest, most of us just skip right past. My own family was like, how are you going to preach that? Right? This is like, you know, what's in there? Well, amazingly, God had a design when he wrote it. Right? That it still profoundly speaks to us today when we recapture the language of blessing. That if we become individuals and a church that is relentless in our desire to encourage others, our relationships will be transformed if we can recapture the language of blessing and the importance of enduring grace, that we would be people who experience grace. And something amazing happens when we experience grace, doesn't it? When I am reminded of how messed up I am and how much Jesus loves me anyway, man, it makes me a better person. It makes it so much harder for me to get frustrated. It makes it so much harder for me to be impatient. It makes it so much harder for me to want to take out all the things on all the other people. Why? Because I am reminded of that grace. So may we be individuals and a church that puts these things into practice. And we have an incredible opportunity to catch a glimpse of that encouragement here. I'm going to invite those who are going to help to serve the Lord's Supper to come forward. That the Lord's Supper is an incredible picture of 